Amen. This morning, I would like to talk about money and giving. And there's a couple of things that made this difficult. One, there's just there's a lot of heavy burdens, and there's a lot of heavy burdens in the church. There's you know burdens in my own family, and I tend to be more of an exhorter and encourager. Like if I feel comfortable, it's you know taking a verse to encourage the saints and um, uh, build them up. Not to say that money and giving can't be encouraging. I'm just giving you a picture into the inner workings of me working through, I'm going to preach on giving this Sunday. So there's that. Also, it's awkward. I guess really awkward to talk about giving. So let's just talk about how awkward it is. One, it's awkward to talk about money in general, like not even necessarily in a church setting, but just money in general. And honestly, as I thought about how I could illustrate this just to make you feel how awkward it is to talk about money, the the stuff that I came up with was so awkward that I deemed the point established and moved on. It is awkward to talk about money. Secondly, I am a so-called clergyman talking about money. And that's awkward. Um, The position of the so-called clergymen or pastors or the array of names that they have for what I'm doing here this morning, that position has been abused, and it is common knowledge. Everybody knows about it. Everybody knows about the abuses. Um, Earlier this year, it made the headlines. One of these prosperity preachers um, was asking his followers for a $54 million jet that he was believing God for. And this would be his fourth jet that he he got. Um, That sort of thing is common knowledge, and it makes the news whenever it happens. And unfortunately, it happens pretty frequently. There's people who know of stories of bad stuff happening on accounting books at churches. And so these things are all common knowledge. So for me... And for us here, and for many people who love the truth and love the saints and are absolutely repulsed by that, the temptation is let's not talk about money because I don't want to give the impression that I am anywhere near the guy wanting the $54 million jet. Third, specifically, we here at Lake Road, the elders here are provided for based off of a percentage of what comes in. So it's not a salary. It's a percentage. It's just like, you know, what a farmer's up against. A lot of corn, a lot of corn. Little corn, little corn. You don't get salaried on corn, usually. So it affects us specifically here, the amounts that is given. Now, Andrew and I, since we, are, we have full-time jobs, our percentage is much lower, and that's a good thing. I'm happy and fine with that. And then our full-time pastors have a higher percentage because they are full-time pastors. They're fully supported. Nevertheless, it still remains that specifically here at Lake Road, the giving is based off of percentages. So it's awkward to talk about money and giving. And fourth, this church, so many of you have been so generous to my family that I just recoil at this thought of somehow giving the impression 
that so many of you have not been so generous and we have been so well taken care of by you. So I'll just take this moment and my little space up here and my time on the mic to tell you once again how grateful that we are for all that you have done and how well you have provided for our family. Despite all these things, as you can see, there are layers of awkwardness for a preacher to get up and to talk about giving. Nevertheless, despite these layers of awkwardness, I've had a growing burden over the past several weeks and maybe even a couple of months around a phrase that I read in 2 Corinthians 12. So let's start moving in that direction. I read a phrase there, and it's, it just stuck in my mind. And the phrase started growing a love and a burden that was bigger than the awkwardness. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has been, in the context here, defending his reputation vigorously. And he's, he's been defending himself a bunch. And if you've read the end of 2 Corinthians, you know uh, a lot about this section. And it all looks like self-concern and self-promotion. I mean, he's, he's laying it all out there. And it looks like that the real motivation here is he's just basically trying to put himself forward because he doesn't like kind of, uh, you know, shade cast on his image and his reputation. But he gives us a little glimpse into his heart. The second place he does this is in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. And I just, I love this. He says this, he says, All this time you have been thinking we are defending ourselves to you. It's like you thought this was about me. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ And all for your upbuilding, beloved. He says, I know that it looks like what I've been doing seems to be about me. But it's not about me. It's about God and it's about you. I want your spiritual health. All this, what I've been doing that looks like self-promotion is actually for your upbuilding, beloved. The first time he does it is actually the place where, that I read where this burden just started growing, and that's back in verse 14. Paul says this, he says, Here, for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. And that phrase right there, I do not seek what is yours but you. Lodged in my mind. And I just, man, I rarely get burdens that are this big about a topic to address. But this phrase came in my mind and I started praying through it. And it's actually in the context of money. And I started thinking about it more and more, and there was more of a love and a burden more, and I started reading more about giving and things like that in the Bible, and that just started growing this burden more. And I can say this morning by the grace of God, that God helping us, we are going to talk about money and giving, and I do not seek what is yours, but you. I am not after your money. I'm after you. This is for your upbuilding 
beloved. Why? Because it is impossible to read the Bible without concluding that how you handle your money reflects the state of your soul. So God help me and God help you if one of the men put over you for your care shies away from a subject simply because it's awkward. I can't do that and be a faithful shepherd because it matters for your soul whether you are giving. And we need to hear what the Bible says on this subject. We are followers of the Father who gave the Son and the Son who gave His life. And when you become a Christian, you don't just get this stuff put in you called saved. What happens is, is you are united to the Father and the Son by the Spirit. So that you, among many other things, become a giver too. The Father gave His Son, the Son gave His life, and when they take residence in your life... One of the hallmarks is that you become a giver. And that's where the biblical principle comes from, that when God opens a person's heart, he also opens their wallet. When God opens a person's heart, he also opens their wallet. And that's why, that's why Amy Carmichael said, one can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. God so loved the world that he gave. It's possible to give without loving. It is not possible to love without giving. So it comes down to a conversion issue. And I love your soul. And where you are on this spectrum of giving reflects pretty closely the state of your own heart and where you are with the Lord. We see all this illustrated in several places. Um, We're going to go through a lot of verses today, Lord willing. Some of them we'll turn to. Some of them um, I'll just read. Let me just read this one. We see this illustrated in the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19.8. We read about this. And listen to the words of this stingy, rotten little tax collector after Jesus came into his life. He says this. He says, Remember, he's up in the sycamore tree. It's very hard to read the story without singing the song. But he's up in the sycamore tree, and God comes to the spot, and then God goes to his house, and the Pharisees are like, man, he's with, us. There, he's with sinners. And they're all complaining. But this is what Zacchaeus says after Jesus takes up residence in his life. He says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give it back four times as much. And what does Jesus say based off of this new behavior? Zacchaeus comes up. He's clearly very different. He said, I'm about to give away half of what I've had, and then I'm going to start going around to find everybody I cheated as a stingy, rotten little tax collector, and I'm going to start paying it all back four times as much. What does Jesus say in relation to this new behavior? He says, today salvation has come to this house. Well, how can it be so clear? Why? Because when God opens a heart, he also opens the wallet. It's just 
one of the marks of conversion. We see the opposite of this illustrated in the story of the rich young ruler. Only one chapter earlier in Luke, and very close to the end of the chapter, these these contexts are actually tied together. So we read this in Luke 18, and I'll actually read this one here. In Luke 18, starting in 18, it says this. It says, "A, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he, the rich young ruler, said, All these things I have kept from my youth. Now let's just stop right there. That's actually pretty impressive, right? I mean, we may think, man... I mean, after you ask this many questions, like, why would you go any further? Like, this is a pretty impressive resume, not simply the fact that he's avoided all of these sins, but he says, I have avoided all of this since my youth. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Jesus brings up money. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. But when he heard these things, he was very sad because he was extremely rich. What do we see here? We see the opposite principle. When God opens a heart, he opens his wallet. He opens the wallet. So what does it tell us when there's a closed wallet? There's also a closed heart. Open hearts, open wallets. Closed hearts, Closed wallet. Despite, and this is what's incredible, all of his other religious resume, he wasn't willing to give. And because he wasn't willing to give, he walked away from Jesus. He walked away from Jesus. Christ talked about this a lot. There are so many verses on this. We're not even going to hardly even skim the surface. But there's a couple that you could probably think of off the top of your head, like Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, there's people whose spending habits reflect their own selfish interest, and then there's people whose spending habits and giving habits reflect their kingdom interest. And this is what Jesus says. He says, For where your treasure is... There your heart is also. Follow the treasure, find the heart. Right? A couple of verses later, in case that wasn't clear enough, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. We want so much in life to be a both and. I can do both. I can be both. But there's some things in the Bible that the Bible comes down and says this is actually an either or. You're either going to serve money or you're going to serve Jesus. Like if you could just get a kind of a trend of your spending over the years, would that trend have anything in it that reflects serving Jesus? Or does it look like serving money and selfish interest? It's an either or. It becomes a kingdom and conversion issue, and then beyond that, where you are at on that spectrum in your own life, and we'll get into some of the details here in just a second, 
reflects the state of your heart and how you're doing spiritually. You cannot follow God with a closed hand. We serve the Father who gave the Son and the Son who gave His life. And when those take up residence in your life to some degree and ever-increasing as sanctification happens, we become givers more and more. But the seed is there always in every Christian. It would be profitable just to keep going on verses like this just to show the weightiness of this and how much it comes up in the Bible. However, I just want to take a little bit of time and give principles for giving, just a bunch of principles. We won't spend a ton of time on most of them, but I just want to get a bunch of this out out there just to talk practically and on a principle level what the Bible says about giving and the believer. Uh, I need to give a full disclaimer, I am heavily indebted to Ryan Fullerton and John Piper, who had some really, really, really helpful insights from pastoring over the years. It was neat to read from John Piper stuff he said early in his ministry in articles, and then stuff he said later in his ministry in his articles. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that, um, because there was some really, really helpful stuff there. Nevertheless, they got it from Paul and Jesus, so I don't feel bad at all. Principles for giving. Let me read you some of what we're going to go through, and then we'll just walk walk through them. One, who should give? Two, how often should we give? Three, how much should we give? That's the fun one, right? That's the one. It's like what it comes down to a lot of times. Like talk about it. It's like all right, now what are we actually talking about here? How much should we give? Number four, where should we give? Number five, encouragements to give. And number six, how do you start? So that's what we're going to look at, Lord willing. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. First Corinthians 16, we'll read verses 1 and 2, and the first three things, who should give, how often, and how much, the principles are contained elsewhere in the Bible, but concentrated here. Paul says this, he says, now concerning the collections for the saints, which was actually a special collection that he talks about again over in 2 Corinthians, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do, you, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection may be made when I come. So let's look at some principles. Number one, who should give? Each one of you. That's what Paul says. When he's talking about this collection, he just makes a blanket statement, which is pretty incredible if you know how diverse Corinth was, he says, each one of you. It's very significant. Paul says that every Christian should be seeking to give. Are you young and a believer this morning and you don't have very much and your income is kind of sporadic? Um, You may have chores, you may not have chores, you may only get stuff every once in a while and you don't have much to give, don't despair There was a widow one time that gave what was equivalent to probably a little bit less than a dollar, 
And it impressed Jesus so much that he had it put in the Bible so that everybody could read about it. Jesus was impressed with giving even though it was little. She didn't have much. So don't despair if you don't have much to give. But it's very important to note, it says, each one of you. What about those that are financially pressed, right? Because that comes up. Let me just read you a text. I'll read you 2 Corinthians. We, we can turn there. Turn to 2 Corinthians 8, just so we can see this. 2 Corinthians 8, and we're on the principle of who should give. Paul has said, each one of you. And we want to see what Paul says about what would be the most obvious thing that if there are massive exceptions, it would be those that are financially pressed. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, this is what Paul says. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. How does deep poverty overflow? That's almost like they're mixing metaphors there. As something goes deeper, it does not overflow. But in the kingdom, it does and it can. Their deep poverty, not just poverty, it was deep poverty, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability... They gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. Who should give? Each one of you. These Macedonians are pressed. They're in deep poverty. But this overflows in a wealth of liberality that appropriate to their level of what they have. They gave according to their ability and in some cases it Paul says, even beyond their ability, because they were begging in the, this favor of participation in the support of the saints. Let me say, I do think it can be right in certain situations for a true Christian to hold off giving for short seasons. However, this exception is truly exceptional and if that's something that you're considering or doing, you would want to seek counsel about that before you do it for several reasons. But one of them is, is that ironically, you will be cutting yourself off from God's normal way of providing for you if you stop giving. Not to say that God's not still going to provide for you, but his normal way of providing for the Christian is through them giving. You're like, that doesn't even make any sense. We'll be talking about that here in just a minute, Lord willing. However, the first point should be well established. Who should give each one of you? Second, how often should we give? He says this in, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, every week. And you're like, well, I get paid twice a week. Somebody else is like, I get paid once a month. If you're a student at ATSU, you get paid twice a year when disbursements come in. The point here is not necessarily every single week, but it's as often as funds come in, you should be giving. It is so good for your soul to establish the rhythms of giving. Money comes in, I give. Money comes in, I give. There can be kind of a, um, a jerkiness to giving. It's like I give a couple of, you know, I haven't been giving for a long time. And then all of a sudden I hear a sermon 
or I read a verse, or I hear a testimony, or something like that, and I'm so convicted because I haven't given, so I just like give a bunch, and then it's nothing, 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 and my soul's kind of wilting, 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 and then months or whatever later, it happens again, and I get, and it's kind of jerky. The giving's kind of jerky. It is so good for your soul, and there's so much wisdom in what Paul is saying here. Obviously, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I'm just trying to bring this out of establishing rhythms of giving. Um, I had surgery on my left hand many years ago, and, oh, man, it was painful as surgeries go. It was really painful, especially the physical therapy. But one thing that they had me start doing in recovery was they just wanted me to start moving it constantly and to keep it moving. And if you've ever had surgery or you've ever had something that got hurt and you haven't moved it in a long time, you know what happens. There would be times that I would stop moving it as much, and what does it do? starts getting locked up, and it, get, it gets very stiff. And when it comes time to start trying to move it again, it's very hard. And there's a big temptation to say, I think I'm just going to put this off till tomorrow. Right hand, you take over. Why is this? It's because when something doesn't get used very often, it's very, it, it will start getting locked up. And the same thing happens to your soul. If you are not in the rhythm of giving your soul is going to get locked up and when it comes time to start trying to give again you're going to be all clammed up and it gets much harder and temptation is going to come in there it's also a help jesus said be jesus said this be on guard against every form of greed and it is so good for the soul to have this thing that when money comes in, there's no even thought about it on one level. There's no thought, am I going to spend this on me or am I going to give this to the Lord? As you just know, I've already established this. I, you know, as money comes in, I have this rhythm of giving. And it's just a good safeguard for covetousness, covetousness and greed that Christ warns us about. So there's several levels of why this is good. It's good for the church. There's just several levels of why that's good. So what does Paul say? How often should we give? He says every week. Or to put it in a different way, there should be a rhythm to your giving. As money comes in, be giving. Third, how much should we give? Again, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, as he may prosper. Generally, when we talk about giving, we talk about Tithing. Does anybody know what tithe means? Tenth? Yes. Tithe means tenth. And that's very common knowledge if you've been in church very long, giving 10%. So everyone should be giving 10%. However, there's a few problems with making this the end-all statement on giving. And by that I mean that this point would be how much should you give? 10%. Point number four. There's a problem with doing that. One... Under the Old Covenant, this tithe was more like a tax. Okay, so it's was, it was a, a little bit different than New Testament giving, although there's some similarities, and we'll see that in just a little bit. It was more like a tax, and it was not just 10%. There was actually a 10% that was set apart in Numbers 18 for the Levites for ministering in the temple. So there's that 10% that people were supposed to give. In Deuteronomy 14, there's another 10% that was a tithe of produce. And then a little later in Deuteronomy 14, every three years they were to give 10% again. So roughly, that's 23.3%. And if you want to give 23.3%, the deacons will be waiting in the back. 
The point is, saying that 10% is the end-all, be-all, even under the old covenant, it was not quite 10%. The second problem here is that the New Testament actually never explicitly commands us to tithe. Tithe. Now, I'm using the words here. I didn't say give. Obviously, that's there. The New Testament actually never explicitly commands us to tithe. The verse that people try and use is in Matthew 23, where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he's talking about their um, avoiding the weightier matters of the law, and they tithe all these things. He said, you should have done these things, the weightier matters of the law, and not neglected the other. You should have tithed and done the weightier matters of the law. And they're like, see, you should tithe 10%. Well, the problem is, is Jesus also commended the sacrifices. He says, if your brother offends you, um, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Obviously, there are no sacrifices anymore. So this just tells us something, that there's a bigger principle here than the only thing that Jesus is doing in Matthew 23 is reestablishing the tithe in the New Testament church. And even if you tried to argue with it from there, it just doesn't, like, you don't get Paul saying, um, oh, yeah, you want to talk about percentages, lay aside something at the first of the week, each one of you, the tithe. Moving on. He uses this phrase as each one has prospered. In typical New Covenant fashion, you don't get a percentage, you get a person. When the Bible wants to talk about giving under the New Covenant and for Christians, it doesn't talk in terms of tithes or percentages at all. It talks in terms of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 8, and I'll just read this one, when Paul is urging these Christians towards giving and generosity, he says this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So when you want to talk about our standard of giving, it is much higher than the old covenant. Our standard of giving is just like our standard of loving our wives. It is just like our standard of all other things in the Christian life. Our standard is the Lord Jesus. And in the context of money, that is exactly what Paul does when he wants to urge you to generosity and show you what our standard is. It is the Lord Jesus who, although he was very rich, he made him very, himself very poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now what Paul is not saying is that every Christian should give their money away, every cent of it, all the time. It's very clear that that's, what he, uh, that's not what he's saying because he tells the Corinthians when he goes to talk to them about it in just a short phrase, he says, as God has prospered. So I cannot lay down a law this morning on percentages. All I can say that is when it comes to the question of how much you should give, that you're in your giving, you should strive to be ever growing in your sacrifice as God has prospered you. I think this quote from C.S. Lewis is very helpful. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our spending on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it's too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do, but we can't because our commitment to giving excludes them. 
I think that's, that's good. You can kind of feel the tension. And so much in the New Testament is like this. Like, Man, give us a manual. Like, just tell us. Just give us. Just tell us. It's like, well, the Bible's not going to do that. Because when you come to the Old Testament, they're like, all right, trim your beard to this short and do this, that, and the other, and the sacrifice, this, that, and then you get these long, long instructions. And when you come to the New Testament, you have the Lord Jesus Christ who turns around and says, follow me, follow me, be like me. And it pulls you into tension. So when we talk about percentages, all I can say is, is that we should strive to be ever growing in our sacrifice so that we can be like Jesus as God has prospered us. We want to be like the Macedonians who, according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave. Now, let me circle back. I do think that 10% is a helpful starting place for giving. Starting place for giving for several reasons. One of them is, is that is what God did set up under the old covenant for support of the local ministers in the temple there. Which leads me to my next point. Number four, where should we give? So we've talked about who should give. What have we talked about? We've talked about who should give. How often should we give? And we talked about rhythms, and rhythms are good for your soul. How much should we give? And now we're going to talk about where should we give. As a principle, prioritize your local church. And then after you've given there, give above and beyond to other ministries and missionaries. And I say this because of how much the Bible talks about supporting those who regularly minister to you. And along with that is what is tied up in trying to run a local church, like lights and water and snow removal and the vacuum cleaner that went out a couple of weeks ago and plumbing because someone did a physics experiment with an orange, which we won't talk about, and outreach materials and, oh, man, we could just keep going, couldn't we? Just all that it takes to run a building and a church Seems like the, the Bible, because of how much it emphasizes supporting those who minister to you and tied into that is just running a local church, that you should prioritize your local church and then anything above and beyond that, give to other ministries and missionaries, which is a very commendable thing, and Rachel and I, um, we do that. We've already established that in Numbers 18, the Levites were given 10% of the rest of Israel's income to support the ministry. So even back there... Baked into the Old Covenant and instruction there, there's a monetary support system for running the local ministry and the ministers there. Jesus reestablishes this principle in Matthew 10 when he's sending out the 12 for the ministry. He says, a worker is worthy of his wages. 1 Corinthians 9, and let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 9 is a very important text on this. 1 Corinthians 9. Starting in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. And, you know, all these contexts, like, I'm just not making these up. Like, these are nice verses that generally apply to the Christian life. 
and I'm trying to specifically apply them to giving, which you can do a lot in the New Testament. These are actually all in the context of giving, and this is specifically in the context of supporting local ministers. And like I said, I believe tied up into that is the local ministry in terms of the physical building and just the, the structure of the whole thing. Starting in 6. Or do only... See here... Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Because Paul actually did not take the support. But he's talking about this is a right for ministers and the ministry that are with you regularly. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things among you... Is it too much if we ask to reap? Phys- is it too much if we reap physical, uh, material things among you? His basic argument here is that if you use or receive a service, you should pay for it. He's saying, look, if you're if you'll pay your basically pay your farm animals, you should probably support the local ministry if they're ministering to you. On a regular basic, and the argument is so basic, it's almost embarrassing, right? But it would be like me, you know, we have really fast internet at work, and my internet at home is really not that fast. So sometimes before trips, I'll take, um, if I'm going to listen to message or an audio book, I'll take my phone or something to um, ATSU so it comes down much quicker and faster and I can be done with it. But let's just say, you know, because that's kind of that's the cool internet. I like that. And the stuff at home, you know, I just kind of grumble about it. And that's Cable One at home. And that's, <laughs> I think that's still Bluebird at ATSU, I think. And so let's say that at the end of this month, um, I wrote Cable One after they sent me my bill. I wrote them and said, you know, thank you for your reminder, but I thought I should just let you know that I felt led to give my money for the bill this month over to Bluebird at work because they, they were faster, and I just I felt led to do that. What's Cable One going to say? One, you should probably go see someone about that, like to check your head. And number two, you still owe your bill, and now you owe interest. Why? Because I used a service. But this can happen too in a local church where you're using the building, you're being ministered to constantly, but it's kind of more exciting to support some of these other missionaries and these other ministries that kind of seem to be on the cutting edge. And we're boring sometimes, a lot of times maybe. I don't know. And it can just be so drab and just the the familiarity of the thing. It's like I want to really be part of something exciting. So there can be this thought to be pumping your money elsewhere. Well, Paul's basic argument, he's like, you wouldn't do that to your farm animal. Like, don't do that to your church. So then he argues that there. Then he picks up again in 13, he says, do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? 
so also the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And that's why I said earlier that even though the New Testament does not lay down percentages, and so I'm not going to lay that down as a law, it probably is helpful to view 10% as a good starting place for what you want to give to your local church. That's not the ending place. It's probably the starting place because that's what God set up under the old covenant for the support of that structure and those ministers. So it's probably a good starting place. That's 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 14, and we're just establishing that as a priority, you should probably prioritize the local church and give anything above and beyond after that from the sheer volume and weight uh, that the Bible gives to this in, uh, in script, that God gives to this in Scripture. We don't have to turn here. Let me just read you a couple of other ones. Galatians 6, 6, it says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The real interesting part about this, if you go and read that context, immediately he goes into um, those who sow to the spirit, those who sow to the flesh, um, etc. And then he ends it with, so good, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are to the household of faith. It seems like the context of that thing may be entirely what it starts with, and that is support of ministers and people who are teaching and sharing. And like I said, tied into that is the local ministry. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. One more, 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well, well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Do a Greek word study on that, and you'll see it's talking about money. It's not some spiritual thing like we honor you. You know, or like a certificate or like whatever. Those are good things, maybe. But um, this is talking about actually reimbursing those who are, with money, those who are elders and ruling well, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. That's why I am completely fine, and I think it's right, that um, Andrew and I, partly because we're pulled away from our full-time job, but that means that Dick and Charles are ministering even more, and that's why they should have a higher percentage. They're worthy of double honor because they're laboring more and harder than Andrew and I can simply because of limitations. However, this principle is just established over and over in Scripture. All these things taken together, and we could go through more, seem to establish a good principle that it's right to start your giving at the local church, and then anything above and beyond you want to give, go from there. Number five, encouragements to give. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. We'll bring out two encouragements from here. 2 Corinthians 9, and I will read 6 through 8. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, again, I, I, just, I'm, I don't have time to expound context. This is talking about giving and money. Each one of you must do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, 
for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So what encouragements can we get here for giving? You may be thinking, I want to start giving. Well, let me just encourage you with this. Number one, the Bible calls this a good deed. A good deed. Giving is a good deed. That's what Paul just said. We tend to think of routine things not counting. Like my little boring, we'll just call it so-called tithe check at the, uh, I'm, what am I paid? Once a month. My check that comes in once a month is just kind of the routine thing. But the real exciting things are when extra comes in and I can give extra. We tend to think of the routine things as not really counting, and really the stuff that counts in the Christian life is the big, exciting things that you can do that are kind of over and above and beyond. As I grow older in the Christian life, and as I read the New Testament much more closely than I read it as a younger person, I am seeing more and more God loves routine things done for his glory and for his sake. We we were... Somebody brought up homeschooling about to start earlier and public school teachers and people that are going to go to public school. It feels so routine. It's not routine. Like the the stress of it is not routine at all because it is very stressful in many ways. But it just seems so routine. It seems like one of those things that's almost like a necessary evil and that it's not a big deal to God. But over and over and over in the New Testament, we learn that God loves routine things done for his glory. He loves it. And so here, the Holy Spirit has this phrase inserted here in the Bible to push this beyond all doubt, that when you give, that is classified theologically as a good deed. And that makes God smile. A good deed. That's an encouragement to give. Secondly... It's God's way of providing for you. It's God's way of providing for you. Let me just read you this quote from John Piper. Let me actually, I'm going to read these verses again so that it's it's a little bit easier to follow. He says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly. We're under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. This is what John Piper says. Giving in a regular, disciplined, generous way, up to and beyond the tithe, because he was talking about tithing in this um, context, is simply good sense in view of the promises of God. He says this is good economics. Verse 6 says, He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Then verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency. In other words, the bountiful reaping promised in verse 6 is explained in verse 8 by God's pledge to give a sufficiency for us and an abundance for good deeds. This is not a guarantee of getting rich. It is a guarantee of abundance for every good work and sufficiency for yourself. It's amazing. 
You know, when you hear these phrases about sowing bountifully and stuff, immediately, probably half of you are like, man, the prosperity preachers use that language, right? Get your seed, plant it, sow it, it's going to be bountiful, things like that. The irony is, is they were almost right. They were almost right. Giving does make good economic sense. And if you give, God is going to give back to you. And we'll give you, give you another verse on it in just a second. The difference is with the prosperity preachers is the money is all about them. Or actually what Paul says is that you will have sufficiency for yourself and abundance for good deeds. Follow God, you will have enough for yourself, abundance for good deeds. That's what Paul is saying in this context. Pretty amazing promise. And this seems to be Paul's way of restating Malachi 3.10 where God says, under the old covenant, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now on this. You know, like, man, we can't do, you can't do that. Like, you can't test God. Like, people got in trouble for that, didn't they? Like, you can't test God. Well, this is God saying, I mean, this is incredible. The God of all the earth that spoke everything into existence were these little fallen creatures. God condescended to come down and says, I would like you to test me. He says this, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. You're like, are you preaching a prosperity gospel this morning? I'm reading the Bible at this point. Remember what Paul says, though, sufficiency for yourself and abundance for every good deed. Two encouragements for you. One, if you give, it's a good deed. And God smiles at it. Your little boring, routine check that you send in that may just feel so routine to you, that is not routine to God, and it brings pleasure to him. Number two, this is God's way of providing for you. And we could do testimonies for a long time today of people that would be willing to stand up and say, yeah, I've seen this happen. Like we gave when we didn't think we could give, and then all of a sudden funds started coming in and things like that. There's a big spectrum there of how that happens and practically plays out. However, there are promises in Scripture that one of the ways God is going to provide for you is as you give. Finally, how to start giving. Because that comes down to it. You can hear a message like this. It's very clear from the New Testament that it is not good for your soul not to be giving. It's not good for your soul not to be in rhythms of giving. There's all these things about giving in the, New, in the New Testament. How do you start? And I would say two things very briefly. Number one, give sacrificially. We've already covered this, but it's worth remembering what we just read. He sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And when the Bible goes to talk about new covenant giving for Christians, it talks about it in the context of you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He was very rich, but he became very poor so that you might become rich. Give sacrificially. Number two, give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9-7, we've already read this. Each one must do as he's purposed in his heart, own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is not going to do good for you to come up and give away half your income and to be grumbling in your own heart. That's not going to work. Isn't it amazing how much of the, the New Covenant and in the New Testament, there's not all these laws laid down, Paul usually comes back to two things. Jesus is your standard, and let's talk about what's going on in your heart. It's a heart-level thing. Give cheerfully. So what guidance could I give about where you should start? 
sacrificially and cheerfully, and let those two pull in tension. You may be thinking this morning, I don't, I don't even know if I get up to 10% this morning without grumbling in my own heart. Well, maybe you should back down to 8 what could you give? How could you, how could you push the envelope on being sacrificial and yet in your heart remain cheerful? Knowing that we want to seek the grace of God to ever grow in our sacrifice so that we can give more and the heart remains cheerful. And you may be thinking, like, you, like that's kind of a dangerous standard. Like, if you tell people only give with what makes you cheerful, it's like, well, here's a dollar. And I'm happy. And I gave, see you in a month. Well, that person's not converted, right? Like We all know that. You can't follow the father who gave the son and the son who gave his life and be happy with only giving the lowest possible minimal amount to get God off your conscience. That's not going to work. Now, for some of you, and especially thinking of like some of you younger folks that maybe get an allowance or something and you're following Jesus, it may, it may be a dollar. And you know what's going to happen if you give that dollar? God is going to be so pleased with that. You know how I know? That widow. You remember the story of that widow? She's back there as Jesus apparently was just sitting there watching people put in. There's all these people putting in big gifts. This woman comes up and she puts in these, this little bitty gift right there. And he's like, hey, whoa, everybody stop. Look at what just happened here. She gave out of her poverty. She did what she could, as he says in another place. God will be pleased with that dollar. The point that I'm trying to make is that a true Christian is never asked the question of how little could I give and get God off my back. However, I do think it's a good principle to start. How could I give sacrificially and yet cheerfully as I continue to seek God for that ratio to become bigger? I can make bigger sacrifices, and my heart remains cheerful. These are just some general principles from the Bible. 